0: Hello, everyone. Alan Mishra here from Vitality Explorer News with another edition of the Vitality Explorer News podcast. And as we always do on Vitality Explorer News, we're going to start with a quote. And this one is from Herman Melville, and he is the American novelist and writer of Moby Dick. Here it is: "Quote: We cannot live only for ourselves. A thousand fibers connect us. We cannot live only for ourselves." a thousand fibers connect us. So we are going to change things up a little bit on, Vi- on the Vitality Explorer News podcast. We're going to focus more on just a couple things per, per week. And uh, we'll start off with a second announcement, and that is that the Dare to be Vital second edition of my book is coming out this week. So watch for that. And this includes about 50% more material, includes lessons I've learned from. Um, hosting vitality discussions at Stanford, the University of Cambridge, University of Michigan, Google, and many others. So this week, we're going to really take a deep, deep dive into vitamin D. Now, we've talked about this before, but a couple new papers came out, one including uh, the the risk of of developing diabetes in the context of low vitamin D levels. And the second thing we're going to talk about is our social vitality in the context of a new paper that was published called uh, the social fragility index, okay? Excuse me, social frailty index, not fragility, social frailty index. All right, I wanna start with vitamin D, but I'm gonna tell you a quick story of why I'm very interested in it. And about seven or eight years ago, I was getting sinus infections, probably four or five per year, ready to get some sinus surgery done until I found my vitamin D level was 16, and that is in nanograms per milliliter, for those who want to know. And I found out after correcting my vitamin D level that my risk of getting a sinus infection plummeted. And I've only had a couple in maybe, I don't know, six or seven years now. So it made me take a really interesting journey through the vitamin D literature. And we're going to talk a little bit about that but let's take, a, take a, a step back and let's just discuss what vitamin D is. And this is a quote from a paper uh, that I'm going to read to you. So vitamin D, well, I'll just paraphrase it. Vitamin D is obtained from just only a few dietary sources, such as fish, egg yolks, uh, some sort of fortified foods. But we, we know we can get vitamin D from the sun, but some of the interesting findings about this that You really have to be in sun that's above a 45 degree angle in order for the vitamin D on the horizon, 45 degree angle in order for you to convert that through your skin. And then as we age, as we get older, we convert that less, you know, you know, per unit of sunlight that we get. We also absorb it less well. So there's a couple things and obviously being out in the sun too much is not good for you. You can develop a variety of different things. This all leads to vitamin D levels being low, and this is very controversial. But one thing I would like to state, for the record, is that science, by definition, is never perfectly solved—not to a hundred percent degree. So lots and lots and lots of examples of this over centuries. You can think about, you know, the Earth being the center of the universe, the Earth being flat, um, lots and lots of things. Relativity quantum mechanics. There's lots of things in physics right now that are being questioned again that we thought were solved. So the the issue with what is an optimal vitamin D level I know is controversial. And so what I'm going to try to provide for people as a discussion point is data. Okay. And the data on a newly published paper is really interesting. Okay. And this is one um, where they were looking at people with who are at risk for type two diabetes. And you can see all the vitality, all the references that I'm gonna talk to you about on the Vitality Explorer new Substack site. We always try to to provide specific peer reviewed published evidence for the things we discussed, but this was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, a very good journal. Okay, this has a impact level of 25.39, which is very good, very high. Uh, And the conclusion in this paper, which was entitled, vitamin D and the risk for type two diabetes with people with prediabetes. So these were people who were at risk for developing diabetes. And here's the conclusion. In adults with prediabetes, vitamin D was affected in decreasing the risk for developing diabetes. So I think we need to pause and think about that. All right, there were, the second part of this is also important. Quote, there, were no, there was no evidence of, dif- of differences in the rate ratios of adverse events, okay? So let's look at this paper in a little more detail. They looked at things for like kidney stones, high calcium and death. And the study was a systematic review of three randomized controlled trials with over 4,100 people that they followed for four years. And the participants uh, were supplemented with various doses of vitamin D or given a placebo. And here's some of the details that are important. So when you look at the overall risk reduction, it was only 3.3%, which is, I guess that's important, but it's not impressive, right? Um, but then the paper did an analysis based on vitamin D levels and found some staggering results. So when they chose a level of, you know, 20 nanograms per milliliter as a baseline and then compared it to people who were above or below that level. Okay, and I'm going to go slow. If you want to read all this, again, you can look up Vitality Explorer uh, Explorer Substack, Substack site. You can also subscribe to Vitality Explorers for a text message version of this uh, but here are the vitamin D levels stratif- stratified with the risk of developing diabetes. And again, they use le- um, twenty to uh, twenty to twenty-nine point six five as a baseline reference level, which is sort of what we- people would say is you know low normal or approaching normal. So they're being very conservative in this. So less than twenty nanograms per milliliter, eighteen percent increased risk. Okay, I think that's not unknown. But here's what's the interesting and phenomenally important piece of data from this paper. If you were 30 to 39.66, call it 30 to 40, 30% re- reduce, 36% reduced risk. If you were 40 to 50, approximately 62% reduced risk. And if you were greater than 50, a 76% reduced risk. So diabetes is obviously a terrible disease, costs our system, healthcare system, at least $300 billion per year, according to the American Diabetes Association. And we need a lot more research into why this is, you know, if this is indeed true, which it seems to be true based on a very powerful paper. Again, remember science is never solved here, but I think this is important. The two conclusions were that supplementing vitamin D reduced your risk of diabetes and that it was safe. Okay. And I looked it up uh, on Amazon just before I put this podcast together, that a thousand units of vitamin D is about seven or eight cents. So even at eight cents per thousand units, and the average dose in the paper was 4,000, that's 32 cents per day to reduce the risk of diabetes. That's off the chart valuable, right? So this is also in the context of other papers that were published which we're going to talk about that looked at the levels of inflammation of the, in the knee and they found that you know people who had knee osteoarthritis and we're going to you know go go through this one again here in, in a little bit of detail because I think it's it's sort of this mounting level of evidence that we have not defined an optimal vitamin D level. And I'm going to give you just a piece of the histor- history of vitamin D is it's based on developing Ricketts as a child or osteomalacia or osteoporosis as an adult. And so all of the normalization data is based on that. It is not based on developing diabetes. It is not based on, you know, knee arthritis. And what this paper, this Annals of Internal Medicine paper that we're discussing here uh, helped me understand is that there seems to not be the the, the you know significant high risk factor if you you are between say thirty and forty or fifty okay if the, if those are the levels again always check with your doctor before you start anything this is information for discussion purposes only okay so the knee paper I found fascinating in the context of uh, inflammation which we found before is really an, a marker of aging and knee osteoarthritis is a massive second secondary problems, sometimes connected to diabetes, sometimes connected to a variety of things, but we need better ways to identify this problem early and treat it. Um, but you know, there's a lot of things that are associated with developing the osteoarthritis, such as previous surgery or injuries, obesity, and diabetes record, uh, risk factors, or excuse me, dietary risk factors. But another one is vitamin D deficiency. You can tell I'm a little excited about this. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 I'm a total vitamin D nerd. I'm really, really trying to understand how this all fits together. And if anybody out there who's listening to this wants to contact me and and talk more about it from a scientific perspective or potentially collaborate, I'm interested because I think we need to pull all the pieces of this puzzle together. Um, But this paper looked at vitamin D status is associated with inflammatory biomarkers and clinical symptoms in patients with knee osteoarthritis. And they compared 124 patients with mild, to moderate bilateral knee knee arthritis with 65 healthy controls, and here's what they found. Okay, serum, quote, serum levels of vitamin D as well as markers of inflammation, including interleukin, uh, 1B interleukin, uh, 6, 10, uh, and C-reactive protein, some of these other things were all evaluated in each participant. So this sort of alphabet soup of markers are the most commonly one measured ones for a person's overall inflammatory markers. So what they found was quite interesting, though, is that they looked at vitamin D levels that were at around 42 in, in healthy controls, um, and they consider these sufficient, and then they consider people who were around 20 to be insufficient, or 19.7. And then they did some fancy analysis, linear regression, and looked at the correlations between the lower vitamin D levels and higher inflammatory marco- markers okay and what they found was something quite fascinating remember the sufficient patients were around 42 the insufficient patients were around 20 according to their definitions and what they found is significantly better um, pain scores overall analysis scores and they found lower inflammatory markers in patients um, who had um, higher levels of vitamin d i think this is very important because we still are trying to define what the optimal level. Remember the paper about diabetes. If you were 40 to 50 or higher, you had a significantly lower risk of developing d- diabetes. If you're 42 in this knee, p- knee arthritis paper, you had a significantly lower level of inflammation. I think the two are connected, okay? Now, this is also very importantly in the context of a study that was widely, widely quoted last summer uh, when they were looking at vitamin D levels that were uh, associated with potential development of fractures. They weren't looking at diabetes, they weren't looking, looking at knee osteoarthritis, and the details matter, okay? So some of the headlines from last summer after this study came out um, were that vitamin D doesn't help your bones, and there's another study that vitamin D doesn't help. Um, and here's here is one of the conclusions from the paper. Vitamin D supplementation did not result in a significantly lower risk of fracture the placebo among healthy middle mid midlife and older adults who are not selected for vit- vitamin d deficiency low bone ma- mass or osteoporosis so i think that's really crucial is that when you look at the data of this paper again you can find all these references in the vitality explorer new substack site that there was uh, looking at the demographic the demographics and the age factors And the study that this one based their conclusions on that were widely disseminated in the lay literature and the lay press is that the average age at the time they were starting to supplement was 67.1 years, okay? The follow-up was 5.1, excuse me, 5.3 years. And again, it was a significant number of participants, 25,000, that's why it was very important. But what they found was the adherence to to the supplementation in the, you know, self-reported was somewhere in the 80s, but the paper only measured, only measured uh, uh, vitamin D levels um, at 5.3% of them at two-year follow-up. So they're basing this data on self-reported, I took it or I didn't take it, as opposed to objective measures of what their vitamin D levels were. And that's a massive flaw in the study, in my opinion, because I think it's impossible to make definitive conclusions when you only had 5.3% of the people who actually had Vitamin D levels taken at two years. So I know these are very difficult to design and execute. Um, I've done large randomized control trials. Nothing is ever perfect. Uh, But I think there's still several other questions that need to be answered. And then one of the most important ones, again, these patients were supplemented in their 60s. They weren't supplemented in their 40s or 50s. They were supplemented in their 60s and followed for five years. And then they were looking for whether or not they got a fracture. I think supplementing it in your 60s is too late. Okay. And then what if you only include pa- patients who are vitamin D deficient? And what would the, you know, f- fracture rates be if you, if you really, really looked at subpopulations that were at higher risk? So again, this vitamin D information, um, the study that we're talking about was vitamin D supplementation and incident fractures in midlife and older adults that was published in 2022. It's also known as the vital trial. You can look that up on them. Vitality Explorer, new Substack site if you're more interested. I've been talking about this. I've published a, an editorial in an orthopedic journal about this in the context of um, you know whether or not vitamin D and ex- exercise could help combat uh, the, the risk factors associated with COVID. There's lots and lots of little tiny pieces of data, moderate pieces of data, and significant pieces of data that have yet to be pulled together in a coherent fashion to identify what an optimal vitamin d level is okay that's again my opinion but i've read literally hundreds of vitamin d articles i have uh, measured and evaluated patients for many many years doing this and it's also my personal experiences i function better in terms of my overall musculoskeletal system somewhere between 45 and 55 on my vitamin D level. Again, this is not medical advice. This is medical information for discussion and debate. Always check with your personal physician uh, to confirm that this is okay for you to consider. Uh, And again, I would welcome people's commentary about this. Um, I think we need to have uh, a discussion about this in a continued way in order for all of us to figure out whether a certain level of vitamin D would be optimal for things like diabetes, knee arthritis and others. Okay. We're going to pivot away from vitamin D. Uh, in the future, we're going to do what we just did. We're going to take a deeper dive into one specific topic. And then I, uh, likely add just one other one. And the second one is going to be about social vitality or also in the context of something called the social frailty index. Okay. So, um, you know, I, I, think, I think it's well known that our social connections, our personal connections, our ability to be around and with other people is a huge component of our longevity. And so there's lots and lots of studies that have looked at this over the years. Um, and this particular study that we're going to go into in a, in a few seconds here, it's called "Social: the Social Frailty Index, Development and Validation of an Index of Social Attributes predictive of mortality in older adults. Before we jump into that, I wanna go over a study we previously talked about here on Vitality Explorer News. And again, you can check, uh, join us at vitalityexplorernews.com, or excuse me, Vitality Explorers to receive a text message version of this. Look for uh, my book that's coming out this week. Uh, you can find it on Amazon, the new edition of Dare to be Vital. But the study was that I want to highlight in addition to the the, the index one is cardiovascular and immunologic implications of social distancing. Okay. And and this particular paper, again, that was published back in 2021, shows that social isolation increases your risk for for cardiovascular issues. It also decreases your immune function. Okay. So being alone or being uh, socially isolated is a problem. Okay, the Social Frailty Index looked at a looked at over um, you know eight thousand people, and they were trying to correlate or find a predictive set of um, factors that would uh, be socially related. and And they they looked at age, gender, and eight social characteristics to stratify. Stratify the risk of actually literally dying. All right. So what's what's more risky for your vitality than dying? And here here's what they found. Quote. In summary, the social frailty index is a short survey that uses social risk factors to estimate the four-year mortality risk in adults 65 and older. The 10-item um, 10-item index obtained by patient report can be used to assess mortality risk and the risk of disability and prolonged nursing home stays very important, right? So here's, here are some of the things that mattered most, according to the paper, age, gender, working for pay, connecting with children, grandchildren, or other young people, volunteering, a sensation of isolation, the cleanliness of the area around where you live, the amount of control you have over your finances and whether or not you are treated with courtesy and respect. So again, we know that social isolation can lead to inflammation, higher risks for your immune system, your cardiovascular system. What this paper tried to figure out is teasing out with a little more or a lot more granularity, what are the specifics that truly matter? Okay, And they looked at, again, over 8,200 people, and these were older people who who were 65 or older, but a four-year follow-up. And 22% had died. And they, they looked at 183 possible predictors to come up with age, uh, gender, and the eight other parameters. And here's here's what their, their quote was. Our, quote, our objective was to develop and validate a summary measure of social risk uh, and determine its ability to stratify beyond traditional risk models. Okay. That's what they're trying to do. And this the survey, I'll, I'll just kind of go through this again. They have a We have a link to it where you can do it online on the Vitality Explorer Substack site. So here's number one, how old are you? Number two, what's your gender? Number three, are you working for pay? Yes or no? Number four, do you have any living children? And then there's sort of a subsection if you're around your children, do you see them daily, once a week, several times a month or never? There's like a stratification of seven. Number six is how often do you do each of these activities which is sort of connecting with neighborhood children, grandchildren, Do you do do other voluntary or charity work? Um, Other questions, there's four more questions. Uh, How much time, or excuse me, how much of the time do you feel isolated from others? Often, some of the time, hardly or never. Um, Next question is, you know, uh, within a 20 minute walk around your home or within about a mile of your home, on a scale of one to seven, uh, one being very clean and seven being full of rubbish, where are you? Very interesting parameter, right? Number nine in the study was on a zero to 10 point scale, um, with one being no control at all, and 10, you're completely in control of your financial situation. And the last question, which I think is very important, and this is something we can all help modify, is how often have you had any of the following things happen to you? And, you know, uh, you are treated with less courtesy or respect than others. Almost every day, once a week, few times a month, few times a year, less than once a year, or not ever. The question again, how often have you been treated with less courtesy or respect than other people? That is one of the things that uh, one of the things that they looked at. Okay. So here's our, here's the vitality explorer analysis and recommendations. So social vitality continues to be an underappreciated component of our longevity. And this study, I think helps us figure out that we should pay attention to it. And I found that two of the components, two of the questions were incredibly interesting. One of them was working for pay. And the second was whether you were treated with respect and courtesy. So being employed, getting a paycheck, I think not only helps our finances, which is one of the other components, but it also enhances our sense of self-esteem. And so everybody who can get a job and get paid for that job in one way, shape or form, it improves their social well-being connects you with other people, and it appears based on the data from this paper that it literally helps you live longer. So I don't think we should be putting people 65 and older out to pasture. That's an enormous opportunity to capture the wisdom and the value of those people. And maybe it's just working part-time or, or doing something meaningful and giving back, but we should be compensating them because compensating them for, for their time, I think is, is an important component of keeping them vital, keeping all of us vital because we can learn from them. And the second whether you are treated with res- with courtesy or respect well maybe you're not in charge of how other people treat you but we are in charge of how we treat other people. Let me say that again we cannot control necessarily how other people treat us but we can control how we treat other people. so so if you want to be your most vital person, my opinion again or my suggestion I'm going to call this a a recommendation is that, or maybe even a mandate. I think we should try to treat everybody with courtesy and respect. It seems to be a thing that's massively missing in our world today, but that's one thing that's really, really important. According to this study, uh, to help us all stay vital. So, um, suggestion for this week, treat every single person you see as much as you possibly can with courtesy and respect. Um, that should help their vitality. And I believe it'll also help your vitality. So again, this week, we, we changed it up here a little bit. We really focused a lot on vitamin D, a lot of data there. I encourage you to look on the Vitality Explorer new Substack site for more of the details about that. I uh, hope you will consider think, uh, checking out or uh, looking up Dare to be Vital. And I'll, I'll put out a whole post on the new book uh, sometime this week when it comes out. And remember, to work on your social vitality because it's a huge component of your overall well-being. So thank you very much for listening to the Vitality Explorer News subs, Vitality Explorer News podcast, excuse me. <laughs> and until next time, get out there and dare to be vital.